Well, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. You guys aren't awake yet. Coffee's to your left. Feel free to go grab some. Well, let me see if I can wake you up. <clears throat> How many of you have ever slept with a weapon beside you in bed? You don't have to raise your hand, but I mean, you can. I mean, pro- let's be honest. We've probably all done it. I mean, whether it was a baseball bat or whatever, we heard a noise and we were all alone. And uh, maybe you were just a kid in the bed and you thought, hey, it wouldn't hurt to put my football helmet on. And uh, like, we've all been there at some point where we were fearful and, and very afraid. I can remember shortly after we moved to Midtown, we had not learned the lesson yet that if you want to ride a bike, don't leave your bike on the porch. No matter how many locks you have on your bikes. And one night, I can't exactly remember how the story went, but my wife Katie woke me up and I was uh, deep, deeply asleep. And she said, someone's trying to steal our bikes. And we have a door in our bedroom that goes out onto the porch and the bikes were just on the other side. And as we looked outside, literally there was a man three or four feet away from us trying to figure out how to unlock our bikes. And there's something that happened within my heart in that moment. I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, move the blinds, uh, flip a light on on the porch, he's gone. No big deal, no harm. Get your bikes off the front porch, right? But something happened in my heart in that moment. And it was only days later and many sleepless nights later in which I was awaking at every sound that I finally came to the realization, okay, God, it's time for me to put my weapon up and to be reminded that you are the one who's in control. And what was really interesting in that story was that it was only when I came to the place of realizing and surrendering my seemingly control of the situation when I said, I'm going to put my weapons aside, that I finally found peace. And that I began to sleep again, unaware of all the noises outside. It's funny in our lives how often we try to control things that are oftentimes way outside of our control. We struggle with trusting God. We struggle with discerning what is best when it comes to the Christian life, we're consistently faced with the struggle of patiently waiting upon the Lord, or the alternative is attempting to take control of our lives. Oftentimes, we don't consider that our decision-making is ultimately the choice between two simple decisions, good and evil. Oftentimes, our struggle with control is just that simple. Will we wait on the Lord or will we attempt to take control? And that struggle between good and evil oftentimes simply comes in the form of ideas. Did you know that every day scientists tell us that the average human makes about 35,000 choices? 35,000 choices that you are making throughout the day. Where is God in the midst of all of those choices? Have you ever thought about that? 
I think an even more significant question is, which of those 35,000 choices should we bring to God? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, what's, what's a big enough deal that we would bring it to the Lord? Should we pray over our grocery list? You know, I'll be honest, for me, that's like what kind of chips, what kind of ice cream, and what kind of little Debbies I should get. That would be like what it looks like to pray over my grocery list. And I can assure you that I don't do that. Because that's just a little too personal for me. Because God might say, put the little Debbies back. And so what do we do? We say, oh, God's not interested in my grocery list. And so I, I put the Lord aside and I pursue what seems best for me in that moment. In today's story from the life of David, we see God's anointed future king display what I want to describe as a growing faith. David is learning what it means to bring all things under the rule and reign of God, particularly in the midst of uncertainty. And what we're going to learn today, the big idea is this, God's desire for his children is that we would grow in an ever-increasing awareness of his goodness and his guidance in our lives. That we, as we mature in Christ over the years, would grow in an ever-increasing awareness of God's goodness and his guidance in our lives. And those two are intimately connected. We'll never see the goodness of the Lord without the guidance of the Lord. And we'll never see the guidance of the Lord until we are convinced that he is good. David, listen to me for this. David, at least for this moment in his life, was convinced of the goodness of the Lord. Maybe not in the next chapter, and maybe not in the chapter before, but in this chapter today, David seems convinced. Let's dive in. 1 Samuel chapter 26. We're just gonna read through this story. These stories are so good. I'm just gonna read through it, and we're just gonna, I'm gonna give some commentary along the way and then give you a few thoughts to think about at the end. One question in particular that I want you to ponder. Beginning in verse one. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Zith with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Zith. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekelah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. You know, last time that we saw David... Uh, as my kids like to say, David had been triggered. You know, when, when dad starts going off, they're like, why is dad so triggered? Well, David was triggered by this man named Nabal. And if you will remember, in a fit of rage, David was preparing to eliminate uh, all of Nabal's household and all of his descendants. 
until he met a beautiful woman. And isn't that the story, man, of many of our, li- our lives? God, in his grace, sends a beautiful woman. And all of a sudden, our lives take a different course. And that's exactly what happened in the life of David. And now it is months or even years later, and Saul is after David once again. Even after David has spared Saul's life. Do you remember the chapter before in chapter 24 when David has the opportunity to literally cut the throat of Saul? And instead in the cave, David just cuts the robe and he points out to Saul that he's not willing to take his life. Now, I want you to remember the time frame in David's life. If you read the commentaries of chapters 24, 25, and 26, theologians will get into an argument whether 26 is just a different rendition of chapter 24 because they're so similar. We're going to see that once again in this chapter, spoiler alert, David is going to spare Saul's life. But what we fail to understand is that it's months and years that David is in the wilderness. David is anointed by Samuel as a teenager. Most theologians believe it's at least 15 years before David is 30 years old when he will actually take the throne. And so we see what is David doing all throughout his 20s? Well, he's in the wilderness. He's learning how to hide. He's learning how to lead others. He's learning how to live dependently upon the Lord. We all want to do big things fast in our lives. But God does his greatest work often in our times of waiting, in our times of learning dependence. If you're in your 20s today, slow down. Some of you, are in, if you're in your 20s, you think you got to figure out what you're going to major in and, and, and what life's going to look like and, and what you're good at. You just need to do a lot of things when you're in your 20s. You need to find out what you're good at and what you're not. Your 20s will not be your most productive years of your life. If you follow the Lord faithfully, we're told that you're fifth, from 50 to 60 is most likely the most productive years of your life. Second most productive years, 60 to 70. And so we get in such a hurry to do big things and do great things for the Lord and to do them fast. But we need to slow down and remember that, that God speaks to us in the wilderness. It's when he does some of his greatest work. So Saul is continuing to hunt David. He's completely unaware that he's opposing the will of God. God's spirit's been removed from Saul. Saul's a, essentially a madman at this point. And so David finds Saul. He's surrounded by 3,000 of his army along with his commander, Abner, And Saul is in this place in which he is ruling from fear. Now, pick back up in verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. 
Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. What a strange story. I mean, who takes two guys and goes down into the enemy camp with 3,000 men? Like, who in their right mind does that? And the answer is David. David does that. I love his courage and his trust in the Lord. You get this sense from David's life that he really believed that God was on his side. Like you get this sense that in, at least in this moment, not in every moment, but at least in this moment, you get the sense that he really believed that God was on his side. And I just wonder how we would live our lives, what kind of risks we might find ourselves taking for the glory of King Jesus if we really believed that Jesus was for us. If we really thought of Jesus like the dad who's trying to teach his kid how to ride a bike, you know? Because I don't know if you remember, when you're teaching your kid how to ride a bike, training wheels. And and my incessant question was, when do they come off? When do they come off? When do they come off? Like every kid wants his training wheels, well, They either want them to come off or they never want to take them off, right? There's one or the other. But many, many just can't wait until those training wheels come off. And why do dads leave the training wheels on? Because we know the value of learning to steer. We know the value of learning the balance that comes and how to brake. And we know that that magical moment when we say, we think you've learned enough with the training wheels on that the training wheels can come off And then what does it feel like as a kid? It just feels like you're flying, doesn't it? Because you've put in the work. You've learned some skills along the way. And I think that's what God does for us in the wilderness. He teaches us trust. And that's what God is doing in David's life. David asked the question, who's willing to go with me? And Abishai, his nephew, doesn't hesitate. He seems to be battle ready. I believe he was an assassin of sorts. I mean, if you read the story, he seems very convinced, one shot, one kill. He has some experience. And he says, I'll go down with you. And as they sneak into Saul's camp, the Lord causes his deep sleep to fall over everyone. And David takes two things, Saul's spear and a water pitcher. These are very symbolic. And David takes off with them. His spear was this symbol of protection consistently in Saul's life. We're constantly seeing Saul and his spear, Saul and his spear, Saul and his spear. He must have been really good with his spear. I think, he was not, I think his spear was probably associated with Saul just as Goliath's sword was associated with him that David had taken. 
And David takes this spear, the spear that Saul had used multiple times to attempt to kill David. Now the symbol of Saul's protection we see is no match for God. With his spear beside him, get the picture, and 3,000 men to guard him, he's still no match against David and Abishai because God is on their side. How foolish are we to believe that we can do great things for God apart from his guidance and his power? And then, on the other hand, we're also foolish if we don't believe that God can do the seemingly impossible with one man or woman whose heart is completely devoted to him. One man or woman who is growing in an ever-increasing awareness of God's goodness and his guidance. Notice in this moment, David doesn't flinch in his decision-making regarding Saul. Like there's no question that he shouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. There's no hesitation. Abishai says, just one shot, David. And David says, no. And I love David's imagination because you see this trust that David has in the Lord. David says, it's not our place, but we don't have to worry about it. Because Saul, he may just die. He, he may go down in battle and be destroyed. God may strike him down. But ultimately, in David's imagination, he is declaring, my trust is in the Lord. I'm not worried about taking this kingdom by blood. My trust is in the Lord. Love that. As we grow in our faith, we become more confident about God's guidance. And as we grow in our faith, we spend less time looking for signs and assurance and we grow in certainty of who God is and how he is calling us to join him. Do you know what I mean? I'll never forget the first time that I was asked to go on this mission trip and to preach a series of revival services in uh, Fall River, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And I was in college, and I can remember the struggle that went on. Literally, like, let me read the newspaper and see if I can find some sign from the Lord who would tell me whether I should do this or not. Because I was so afraid. That was what it was. I was just fearful. I was fearful of the whole thing. I was fearful I wouldn't have time to prepare. I was fearful I wouldn't be a good preacher. I was fearful everybody would be watching me and I'd ruin it all. It was just fear. But God, as he, in his goodness, he guides us. As we grow in him, we begin to see the ways uniquely that he has gifted us. And as we grow older, we look for less signs and wonders, but we become more confident of his guidance in our life. And when he says, hey, I'm prompting you by your spirit, my spirit's within you and I'm calling you to do something that's really hard. We can more easily step into that sacrifice and say, this seems like something that the spirit would bring into my awareness. It's not something I would choose, but it's something God desires. He doesn't have to give me signs and wonders. He doesn't have to show me bumper stickers. Like I can trust in the Lord. And that's what David's doing in this moment. Now pick up in verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. David was an extraordinary man. When you read this, 
remember, point of his story is not to be like David. David always points us to the greater David, who is Jesus. Okay? David had an incredible personality. I believe that David was a little piece of all the personality types because you're about to see comedian David step up, okay? Like David knew how to have a good time, right? I mean, he was a poet, he was a warrior, he was also a comedian. Listen to this. And David called out to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, now keep in mind, I gotta think that Abner must have taken David's spot because David was like watching over the king, he was over you know, Saul's security, and now David's run out in the wilderness, and who's sleeping by Saul? Abner. Listen to what David has to say. David called to the army and to Abner and the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer me, Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man who is, who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's appointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. You see what David's doing there? David, he's having a little fun with Abner. And he's saying, like, I love this sense of humor. He's giving Abner a really hard time. Um, our kids would say he was checking Abner. You guys, you know what I'm talking about? You want, some of you parents. Okay, checking is like making fun of, you know, oh, look at them shoes. Where did them shoes come from? You know, like, he's not checking Abner. It's far worse than that. He is pointing out to Saul Hey, by the way, your head of security fell asleep on the job. He should be put to death. Serious. Now pick up the story in verse 17. Look, look how Saul responds. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? I love this next section. It's a great challenge for us. Now, therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out of this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to, sink, to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. I love David's reasoning here. He's calling Saul to process his emotions. He's calling for Saul to actually to process his anger, to look below the surface to examine his emotions. He's asking Saul, literally, who is stirring your emotions, Saul? Is it God or is it evil men? It's a very important step for followers of Jesus to become aware of our emotions, what's stirring us. I was brought up to believe that we can't trust our emotions and that's that is true at times. 
but we also must come to understand that God created us with emotions. Adam and Eve had needs in their life. Those needs, even before the fall, pointed them back to God. They were meant to be stop signs that every time they ate and enjoyed the goodness of the fruit in the garden, they were reminded that God is the one who provides. And in the same way, our emotions are meant to point us back to God. When we're fearful, there's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to say, God, I need your help. I'm fearful. I can't do this on my own. I'm weak. I need you. And by the way, folks, you are fearful every day if you're like me. There's not been a single day of my life that I've lived without fear. And so our emotions are this incredible opportunity for us to examine what's taking place in our hearts and to bring that, not, listen to me, not just into our awareness. That doesn't help. In fact, that actually hurts. If you just bring your emotions into your mental awareness and you come to realize I'm fearful, I'm ashamed, I'm lonely, I'm sad. If you just merely bring those things into your mental awareness, you're gonna walk away either on a legalistic side of saying I'm fearful and so I'm gonna fix it um, I'm sad, so I'm going to go and do something more that's going to make me happy. Um, I'm going to try to fix this. That's the legal side of things. Or you're just going to be covered in shame. And your shame is just going to say, I'm just not enough. I just wasn't good enough. But we have to bring our emotions to Jesus. That's the key. Talking about this with Chris and Jared at lunch this last week at an elder meeting and just talking about how important it is that we're not just aware of our emotions, but that we're actually bringing our emotions to Jesus and then saying, you're the one who provides. You're the one who's my stronghold. You're the one who's my rock. You're the one who's my refuge. You are my strength. David was so good at that. He's calling for Saul to do that, but Saul, Spirit of God's left him. He has no ability At this point, in order to hear from the Lord. Now, see how this story ends in verses 21 through 25. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly. I've made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way. And Saul returned to his place. What we see in David is a growing awareness of God's goodness and his guidance in his life. And my question is, where did that come from? I believe it's a growing awareness that came as David submitted himself humbly to God's plan of maturity. And God's plan of maturity for each of us is the wilderness God's plan involves learning to wait in humble dependence upon the Lord. Learning to wait. 
God's plan is that he will raise us up because he knows when it's time. He knows when it's time for the training wheels to come off. But we don't like God's ways. We don't like to wait. We don't trust him. We don't believe that he knows what's best and that he always does what is good and right and perfect. We believe he's holding back on us. And so we try to save ourselves. It's a story that's been repeated over and over again since Adam and Eve. A story of trying to save ourselves. And the difference between good and evil, following the Lord and taking control, is far more subtle than you might imagine. You see, it wasn't even the fruit that ultimately tempted Adam and Eve. It was merely an idea. What did Satan say? If you eat the fruit, you will be like God. It was almost as if you could take the snake in our children's story Bibles and replace him with a mere question mark. Is God really good? Can he be trusted? Satan traffics in ideas. We think that Satan is all about distracting us with things like sex or money or power. But Satan traffics, first and foremost, particularly in the West, in ideas. Dallas Willard writes about that in his book, Renovation of the Heart. And if we're to pay attention to what it means to understand God's goodness and guidance in our life, we must pay attention to the ideas that we're thinking, to our thoughts and what's going on within us, what's going on in our minds and in our hearts. He traffics in ideas. And his favorite idea that he's currently selling the Western church, his current idea is that you can be content and happy without Jesus. He's currently selling Western culture, even conservative Protestantism, which I would say is the good guys, right? He's selling us this form of individualized, hyper self-focused Christianity. That you can be content and happy if you give Jesus your Sundays and maybe a week of vacation for a mission trip and give some money, maybe even tithes and offerings, even get in a small group where you have some accountability and a little connection. And all the while, Jesus is saying, no, it's not about what you do or about what you don't do. It's not about religion and programs. It's not even about missional communities, folks. It's not even about a strategy for making disciples. Because Jesus would say, I don't want your sacrifice. He wants us. Because he wants to be king. He wants us to learn to trust him. With everything, even our little Debbies. How did David establish that kind of trust in the Lord? How did David grow in this ever increasing awareness of God's goodness and his guidance in his life? We see that David was empowered by the Spirit of God, while the Spirit of God sustained him in the wilderness. It's interesting if you study 1 Samuel chapters 24 through 26. What you're going to see is that in those three chapters, one third of the uses of the word good and evil 
in the entire Old Testament come in those three chapters. Three different times, David is tempted to take the kingdom of Israel by force. It's as if David is the new Adam back in the garden of Eden, inside of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question mark remains, what will he choose? Remember, David's story is meant to point us forward to King Jesus, the better David. Jesus, he was also tested in the wilderness and tempted. He was tempted to skip suffering. He was tempted to take the crown without the cross. He was tempted to grab glory without the pain. And the point simply that Jesus would suffer, that's not the point. The point was that he must suffer. And David also has the opportunity to skip suffering in the wilderness. And he doesn't take it. Jesus had every right. Think about this. Jesus had every right to skip his suffering, to take the kingdom and the glory by force. But Jesus chose instead for his blood to be shed for you and me. I want to ask you just to consider this question as we kind of round third and head for home this morning. Would you consider this question, where are you tempted to hit the fast forward button in your life? Like where are you tempted to to take control and to step outside of of the wilderness and the, the way in which God is preparing you to use you uniquely? God has gifted you in a special way doesn't matter your age. You might be seven or 77. God still has great plans for you. If he's put life in your lungs, if he's put breath in your lungs, he has incredible plans for you. And where are you tempted to, to try to hit the fast forward button? Step outside of his control, his ways. As we consider that question and, and think about whether we really trust the goodness of the Lord as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to remind you that as you consider God's goodness, that we have a king who is able to sympathize with us in every moment of our struggle and pain, every moment that we could face. And listen, oftentimes we, we kind of say, well, Jesus doesn't count. I mean, he, he was Jesus. He hadn't read Philippians. He laid all power aside. He came under the authority and the will of the Father. And he lived in that beautiful relationship in which he really believed God. When God said, this is my son who I love. In him I am well pleased. And we live in that same relationship today. As we are reminded of the unity that we have with God the Father because of the work of the Son on the cross, we too are heirs of the promise. Everything that Jesus has is ours. God calls us his brother. We're Jesus' brother. You get that? Like amazing that God looks at us and he says, I love you and I like you. Not because of what you've done, not because of what you will do, All because of Jesus. And Jesus is able to sympathize with us in every way. Hebrews 4.15 says it. He says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been 
tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Don't you dare be so prideful to believe that you're more special than Jesus was. And to believe that Jesus wasn't tempted in far more ways than you could ever be tempted. Congregation, may we understand his mercy May we feel his grace. May we know that he is our brother who does not put his hand on our shoulder, but he has sent his spirit to live in us. He understands. He sympathizes in greater ways than we could even imagine. Do you believe that you can submit all of your life to Jesus and that he will lead you into the greatest joy and the greatest contentment that you could ever know. Listen, culture's looking for it. Culture's coming at us like a tidal wave. And they're saying the Bible's foolishness and, it, and, and we can figure out everything by science and we're gonna find our own happiness and contentment. But you know what that tidal wave, you know what's happening in that tidal wave? It's beginning to disperse. Because culture is beginning to see that the tsunami that they've been counting on and they've been riding is not a wave. It's not a wave worth riding. Because they're not finding happiness. They're not finding contentment. They're finding sadness. They're finding suicide that's ever increasing. And the plea that David shows us is this, that there is joy and there is contentment when we come to walk in obedience to God's calling, when we come to see that he truly guides us and that he is good because he knows us intimately. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knows the hairs on your head. He's not just near us, he's in us. You know, I oftentimes pray that, that God would be near, I think the better prayer is that I would become aware of his nearness. As we come and we worship today, Jesus longs for us to see his goodness and his guidance in our life. He's given us his spirit. He's patient with us. He is. He's patient. And he's long-suffering, and he loves us. Praise be to God for Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Let me invite those who are serving communion to come forward. Bow with me as we pray. Father, thank you for King Jesus, the greater David, your servant, who didn't have to suffer death, but was willing to walk in the wilderness on our behalf, to trust even when he didn't feel like trusting, to trust that your guidance was truly good and to walk in obedience. God, would you help us in those images, in those ideas that you put in our mind earlier through your spirit, would you help us not to press the fast forward button? God, would you help us to lean into the pain, to lean into the struggle, to stay in the wilderness knowing that you are faithful, that you are doing a work in us. God, would you help us to relinquish our little ideas of control in order that we could walk in the peace and the guidance and the goodness of King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.